Father in heaven, we come before you this morning and we ask that through these scriptures you would make your son Jesus known to us, that we would uh, know him better and love him and respond to what it is that he calls us to. So right now we just place all the different things that might be distracting us or kind of burdening us and say, Lord, we give them to you and say we want to hear from you. Have your way with us, we pray in your name. Amen. Okay, <clears throat> so today's passage, as you can tell, is like full of a lot of different words that we don't normally use on an everyday basis. The law, the prophets, um, not the, you know, not the least stroke of a pen until everything's been accomplished, uh, least in the kingdom of heaven, greatest in, uh, in the kingdom of heaven, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the righteousness. There's a ton of different things going on here that for many of us as we hear it, it just doesn't necessarily resonate. And so you hear that and you're like, okay, what does he say next? Because I don't get that part. But what I want to try to do, if you'll bear with me just a bit, is just try to unpack some of that um, so that we can understand it and then hopefully actually respond to what it is that Jesus calls us to do. So what is Jesus doing here? Jesus wants to make something clear to those who are listening to him. Jesus is making clear that someone like Moses, but greater, is among them. Someone like Moses, but greater, is among them. Moses was empowered by God to lead Israel out of slavery. No one, uh, once they were out of slavery, they'd been brought out into the wilderness. Moses went up onto a mountaintop to talk to God. None of the other Israelites wanted to. They were actually afraid of the presence of God. Up on this mountaintop, God made a covenant with his people, Moses being the representative. And when Moses came down from the mountaintop, he told the people what he had heard what, and taught them who God was and what God was calling them to do, what, uh, the covenant that he wanted them to live by, to be in relationship with him. Now that background matters because the way in which Jesus is presented in the Gospel of Matthew is as if Something like that is happening. Jesus is brought up. He walks up and, and, and sits down when he's at this mountaintop. At the very beginning of Matthew 5, you'll read that he's on this mountaintop and he sits down and begins to teach his disciples. Right before that, at the very end of Matthew chapter 4, we are given this summary of what Jesus is doing. He's going around to these different towns and setting people free from their illnesses, from demonic oppression, and he's teaching them about the kingdom of God. Right before that summary, we have actually been told that he had called people to repent because the kingdom of heaven had come near. Everything that's going on is meant to point us to see, hey, this Jesus is like Moses, but there's more going on here. And what I mean by that is Jesus isn't going up to a mountain, hearing from God, and then coming down and delivering it. Jesus is actually giving an authoritative teaching. He is the one speaking. And so if you're a good and faithful Jew, you're kind of like, hey, what's this Jesus guy doing? Is he trying to replace Moses? He's giving, he's referencing all these things that we know, but he's kind of like, it sounds a little bit different. It's not what I would expect. It's what, not what I know. Hence Jesus' words, don't think I've come to abolish the law. And prophets, I haven't. I've come to fulfill them. So what are, what's the law and the prophets? 
Well, the law and the prophets was a catch-all for the Jewish scriptures, our Old Testament. The prophets, uh, sorry, the law consisted of the first five books of the Bible, often called like the books of Moses, and the prophets were the rest of the Jewish scriptures written by the prophets, including the Psalms. So the law, those first five books, and the prophets, including the Psalms and everything there. That is what we would call like our Old Testament. Now, when we hear the law, you and I might think of like something legal, right? We might think of legal cases or rules that have to be obeyed. We think, don't break the law. But here's what we don't think about when we think of the law. We don't think of covenant. That's not a word that we use in our everyday. But covenant is what any first century Jew would have thought of when they heard Jesus say the law. They would have thought of this word covenant. Rules were part of a covenant, but they weren't everything. A covenant was a lasting and binding agreement between two parties to be in relationship and an outline of how they would relate to one another. That's totally different than just the law and the way you and I think of it. The law in our day is cold, separate, and impersonal. But covenants are not like that. They are relational. And so if you lived by a particular covenant with this other person that you made it with, you were rightly related to them. If you broke the covenant, you weren't rightly related. So the law that Jesus is referring to is humanity's and specifically Israel's origin story. It told the whole gracious story of how God had rescued and saved Israel to be his covenant people. The law revealed God's will and the prophets told the story of how Israel reappropriated the law in different settings throughout their story. So that gives us a little bit of an understanding of what's the law and prophets, right? But what was the purpose of it? What was the purpose of the law? Because if we're honest, probably a lot of us, when we think of the Old Testament, feel very disconnected from it and feel like, oh, none of it really is relevant or applies to my life. But there was a purpose for it. So what was that purpose? Well, the first was to instruct Israel so that they would become a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. A kingdom of priests and a holy nation. You can read about this in Exodus 19. Mount Sinai is where Moses ascended to meet with God. And there, God tells Moses to go and tell Israel how he brought them out of Egypt to make them his special possession, to establish this covenant with him. Because he had a task for them. And his task was that they were to be a nation that knows the living God and makes him known to the nations through their lives, through their teaching. They were to be like intermediaries between God and the nations. That's what it's talking about when it refers to being this holy nation, this kingdom of priests. But the second purpose of the law, was to point out humanity's sinfulness and need for God. You can read about this in Romans 7. The law made us aware of our sin. Sin is uh, literally just means like missing the mark. It made us aware, though, of how we are inclined to miss the mark. Not just accidentally, not just clumsy. We intentionally, purposefully rebel against God's will. The law made us aware of that. It showed us the way God wanted us to live, 
and in so doing made us aware of that uh, evil within us, which is why Paul will talk about in Romans 7, he'll say, for I have the desire to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out. Anyone resonate with that? That is me on a daily basis. For I do not do the good I want to do, but the evil I do not want to do, this I keep doing. Then he'll go on to say, thanks be to God who delivers me through Jesus Christ, our Lord. The third purpose for the law was to lead humanity to Christ, by whom they'll be justified by faith. You can read about this in Galatians chapter 3. The Apostle Paul in Galatians, in his letter to the church in Galatia, he goes through explaining how the law functioned as a guardian, guiding and preparing us for the Christ, Jesus he writes in uh, verse 24 of that chapter, So the law was our guardian until Christ came, that we might be justified by faith. Okay, so that's just a quick summary of what's the law and prophets, what was its purpose. But here's why this matters for you if you're like, who cares? Get to the point. The point is this. The law and the prophets, the Old Testament, was Jesus' Bible. It was his Bible. If it matters to him, it should matter to you and I. He cared deeply about it. He lived from it. You can see that in his temptations in the wilderness. And he lived to fulfill it. If he cares about it, you should too. He's come to accomplish it, he says, to fulfill it. You cannot understand who Jesus is if you don't understand the Old Testament. If you just dismiss it and you're like, I don't get it. I'm not going to spend time there. You're missing out on a huge part of who Jesus is. Frederick Dale Bruner will say, since Jesus liked and even highly recommended it, there must be gold in these hills. And there is. And if you'll take the time to know and, 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 and read through it and understand it. And look, I know it is weird at times. Like, just it is. There's no way around it. There's a huge cultural and historical gap between us here and the events that happened back then. There's also this huge genre gap. The Bible has tons of different uh, literary genres. Some of them, we don't even have anything comparable in our time. A great example are like the books of Isaiah in certain portions and the book of Daniel. There's uh, parts of it that are, are apocalyptic. There's nothing within our like Western literature right now that makes sense of those things. So when we read it, we're just like, what is he talking about? That, there's that gap there that we'll feel. They'll talk about numbers and use them in a way that can often be symbolic but, and have more than one purpose in ways that we don't necessarily think about. They're also not necessarily always thinking when they're telling a history of just going from point A to B, C, D. They have other goals in mind. So sometimes we're reading the Old Testament and we're bringing our expectations for how they need to be writing even though we weren't even alive when they were writing it. Because even though the scriptures are for us, they weren't actually written to us. And there's that difference that we have to honor in the scriptures. It's also, and maybe this has pushed you away, it's super unflattering in its portrayal of the human characters that you see throughout the scriptures. It shows the, all the ugly bits. It doesn't just present these different people that God uses in his story of redemption as amazing people. No, instead, you see all their failures, all the moments they don't trust God, all the harm they do to other people. You see their pride and selfishness. You don't just see those things, though. You see the violence. And sometimes, in their desperation, when you read about in the Psalms, they're calling God to do violent things. 
And for us, there's this huge disconnect there. And so for many reasons, you and I might feel like, man, like, I just, I don't, I'm just going to keep it at bay. I like the New Testament. It just feels nicer. But here's the thing. Jesus cares about the Old Testament. The early church did not have the New Testament. So the ways in which they were making sense of being faithful to Jesus, what God was doing was all through the Old Testament. They lived in it. That was the story that they were living in. The Bible is this one unified story that points to Jesus. If any of you are like into Bible Project, that's like their slogan. Because they want to make you and help you see that. That it's this one unified story that points to him. And sometimes it will highlight our great need for him by revealing the brokenness of leaders or others at the time. Other times it will show us how people got it right. And things that we can actually uh, seek to copy. And other times it shows us that no one but God was going to be able to do it. You see all of that in Jesus. You cannot dismiss it just because we don't get the cultural differences of what's going on. This means there's going to be a little bit of work for you and I, and that's okay. Because the treasure, the gold, and the hills that Bruner is talking about is Jesus himself. Now, I do want to just speak to one thing because I mentioned that. How is it possible that Jesus can like the Old Testament when there was so much violence and brokenness that you see there? And there's an answer that I saw that uh, Kathy Bruner, the wife of Frederick Dale Bruner, that she writes in the, his manuscripts. She says, I think Jesus could more readily like it because he had the authority to interpret it, particularly its violence through his cross eyes. You see, Jesus understands all of history and the purpose of it all, why these stories and events are included, and it doesn't mean he condones it. But the violence... When looked through his cross eyes, he sees this, and we can see it. That through the cross, Jesus turns something meant for evil and suffering into something with, through which he brings about the redemption of humanity and creation. So the cross turns what the enemy, what humanity meant for evil... And actually turns it into a tool that God uses to bless the nations. It totally flipped things upside down. The cross will begin to inform, impact, and transform the way history and the future are looked at. And so Jesus calls us to love, to cherish the Old Testament. He hasn't come to abolish it, to ignore it, to dismiss it, but to fulfill it. How? Well, it wasn't just to make it more colorful, more entertaining, more fun. He does this, I think, in three ways. The first way is that he fulfills the law by doing the law. Jesus fulfilled the law through his life, his life of perfect obedience to the will of God as revealed in the law. Namely, that God was interested in an inner righteousness that led to an external righteousness rather than just being focused on the outside. And he fulfills this on the cross. The will of his father was to go to the cross and demonstrating his love for humanity on, and his neighbors on the cross, he declares it is finished. Literally, fulfill means to fill it full. Jesus came to bring to full consummation the gracious story that God has been writing in human history 
establishing a new covenant through his death and his resurrection. Jesus came to bring it to completion, all that God had begun to do in ancient times. Jesus brings the law and the prophets to its intended meaning and purpose and goal. And in fulfilling the law and bringing it to its intended goal, Jesus wanted to make clear, look, I'm not abolishing it, but by fulfilling it, something is going to change. And W.D. Davies and Dale Allison put it like this. Jesus displaces the law and prophets insofar as he must become the center of attention. The thing signified is naturally more important than the sign. What Jesus is saying is, look, I've come to fulfill it, and that is going to lead to a change, but I'm not just getting rid of it. It still matters. You need to know it. You need to understand it. Secondly, Jesus fulfills the law by teaching the law. He becomes the interpreter, explaining its deeper meaning. This is what Jesus will do throughout his ministry and what he's doing here on the Sermon on the Mount. On the Sermon on the Mount, you see it, you see it in his confrontations with the Pharisees as they're often coming at him trying to say, hey, you're not doing, you're not abiding by our interpretation of the law. And he begins to make clear the difference between the law and their interpretations, which they often confused. But he also does it after his resurrection. And one of the best places you can see that is in Luke chapter 24. Jesus has risen from the dead, and he's walking on this path with these two disciples who think Jesus is dead. They've heard reports that he has risen, but they're kind of like, they're, they're literally talking to Jesus, not recognizing that it's the risen Lord. And they're telling him, yeah, we had hoped Jesus was the Christ. We thought and hoped he would redeem Israel. And he just listens to them kind of just be all bummed out for a good bit. And then he confronts them and says, did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? And then it says, and beginning with Moses, the law, and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. Jesus fulfills the law by teaching it, by making sense of it, of bringing it to its deeper meaning. Michael Wilkins We'll say this, he says, everything that the Old Testament intended to communicate about God's will and hopes and future for humanity finds its fullest meaning in Jesus. Jesus has come to actualize the scripture and take his disciples to a deeper understanding of its intended meaning. His interpretation then completes and clarifies God's intention. Third, this is where we'll camp on. Jesus fulfills the law by establishing a greater righteousness. You'll notice that the passage that Andrew read, Jesus will say, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the Pharisees and the scribes, you will not enter into the kingdom of heaven. Righteousness just refers to being in right relationship. With God, with others, with yourself, and with the earth. And the Pharisees and scribes in that day are what my son's Bible were called the super extra holy people. Okay? That's who they were, that super extra holy people. They were righteous as far as the people of the day saw it. They lived by the law. They knew the law. They taught the law. But all of this was self-produced. And it only existed at a surface level. They did it in their own power and in their own intelligence. They were focused on being seen as 
righteous while losing sight of the deeper and greater righteousness that God wanted. Jesus can call you and I to a surpassing righteousness, a greater righteousness, a righteousness that exceeds theirs because they had actually missed the point. They thought that righteousness was simply following and abiding the letter of the law, and it wasn't. Because it wasn't faithful to the relationship that it was supposed to be protecting. The covenant is relational. It's not just abiding by these rules. And here's, here's what, what I mean. Jesus is going is to begin to unpack this in like six examples on the Sermon on the Mount right after this. This is kind of almost like a little thesis. And we don't have time to look at that. But you can say, I'm righteous because I didn't murder them. I didn't physically hurt them. Look at them. There's no harm on them. But your words have wounded them. Your body language, your silence have told them they're not worthy of love. Your nonverbal communication has done just as much damage as your words could have. You can say you're faithful because you sleep in the same bed, but your thoughts and your browsing history tell another story. One where lust, not love, runs rampant. You can say I'm righteous because I still listen to their complaints and frustrations, but you don't do anything to address them, to be in a right relationship with them. So the relationship continues to die. You can say you're, right, you're righteous because you're still with them. You haven't called it quits, but inside you already have. You stop praying for them. You stop loving them. You have given up. The relationship is dead, and you're okay with it. You can say I'm righteous because I didn't say anything back to them when they said or did that thing that hurt me. But all day, you've been reliving the moment, imagining the revenge you would get if you had just said this one thing or done this one thing. You would play that moment. Your bitterness and unforgiveness lives beneath the surface, continuing the cycle of a broken relationship. You can say I'm righteous because I didn't lie to them in that deal or conversation or evaluation, but you weren't fully honest. You hid things to portray you in a better light, but you didn't lie. You just didn't mention it. So you actually undermine the trust of that relationship. And we all do this with different things and relationships in our lives, trying to delude ourselves into thinking that we're all right. But that kind of thing is about legality. Something can be legal, but it's not righteous. Legal doesn't equal righteous. And that is not what Jesus is about. And sometimes you and I get so easily caught up in just thinking, well, no, that's okay, I didn't do this or I didn't do that. But the relationship is suffering. With God, with ourselves, with others, this isn't what Jesus is about. That's not enough for the life that Jesus wants for you and I. It's not enough to enjoy and live in the kingdom of heaven, and it's not what Jesus is interested in. So if that's us, we got to literally just say, I'm actually moving on from that. I'm putting that down. See, what he is interested in is an internal transformation of your heart so that you would live rightly related to God, to others, to yourself, and to the earth. One that's not just like this external righteousness on the outside. Jesus has come to bring about a transformation at the center of your being, which, as far as the scriptures are concerned, is the heart. That's the control center of your thoughts, your will, your desires. 
He's come to transform you. And when that happens, here's what it begins to look like. Jesus has come so that you would be a people of radical reconciliation in an age of contempt and devaluing of human worth. He's come so that you would be a people whose purity of heart, mind, and eyes lead to healthy and flourishing relationships. So that you'd be a people who dispense great mercy in a culture ready to just dole out judgment and revenge, parading as justice. So that you would be a people worthy of trust and known for your integrity in a culture where going back on your word and distrust are just the norm. He's come so that you would be a people who repay your enemies, those who harm you and the people you love, with prayers of blessing and mercy. That is not something you can pretend to do. It is not something that will just strictly be external. That's taking it too far. And so how do we do that? How, do, how, how does anyone do that? Well, it's, it is only through a transformation of your innermost core at the deepest level of who you are. And well, truthfully, you and I actually can't. So that might be kind of discouraging. It probably was discouraging for the Pharisees and the scribes as they heard it. But it was calling them to do something that was beyond them. But you see, the Sermon on the Mount, if we're actually going to understand it, embrace it, live in it, we have to see that Jesus is painting a picture through the Sermon on the Mount of what happens when you repent and receive Jesus' good news. If you read it as if you have to do all of these things, it is just another burdensome thing that you'll never be able to live up to. But what Jesus is doing is painting a picture What he's been doing is calling all of us and anyone who will listen to repent. Repent for the kingdom of heaven has come near is how he starts his ministry. And then he begins his Sermon on the Mount. The call for you and I then, whether you're a follower of Jesus right now or you're not sure, is to repent. Jonathan Pennington says, repentance is about the whole person turning back to God and devotedness to him. You've been walking in one direction, living in another story, focused on the wrong things, making the wrong person the focus of the story, and Jesus calls you to turn and see him, to make him the focus, to make his way the thing you focus on, walking alongside of him, being with him. He is the one who created, sustains, and through whom all things are held together, and he has come and called you to repent, to turn around, face him, and actually begin to live life in the kingdom of heaven. Today, now, and this is an ongoing call. Even if you identify as a follower of Jesus, he wants you to turn around and trust him, depend on him. How do you experience a deep and lasting transformation? Repent and give yourself to me, he says. All of you, to be with me, to become like me, to do what I do. Now, why is that so important that you turn around and repent like that? For two reasons. Greater righteousness is received through Jesus. See, when you turn around, when you really trust him and commit to following him, the Bible says you are justified. That's language for being rightly related to God. 
You are rightly related to God. You come before him in his presence, and you are rightly related to him. Because of Jesus' faithful and obedient, a faithful and sacrificial obedience to God's will through the law. In other words, Jesus' righteousness gets rendered to you. And when you come to God, he treats you as if you have been faithful. As if you have been and done what Jesus has done. You get access to him and you become a child of God. And you experience what it is like to live in the kingdom of heaven. All of this is through faith because you trust in him. You depend on him. But secondly, the greater righteousness that Jesus gives us is developed through the Holy Spirit. When you begin to depend on Jesus, trusting him, you receive the Holy Spirit, God's empowering presence. The Holy Spirit gives you and I the power to change and to live like Jesus. And this is what Jesus is establishing, this new covenant, which God had promised in the Old Testament. In Ezekiel 36, God says, I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your impurities and from all your idols. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. See, Jesus knows you and I cannot keep his law, what he calls us to to do and be on our own. We can't do it. The spirit comes and dwells in you and begins this renovation of your heart. This transformation of the things that you love, the way that you respond to things. And Jesus is saying, look, if you want to know what it's like when you turn and repent, look at the Sermon on the Mount. This is what happens when you begin to wholeheartedly trust me and depend on me. Things won't be the same. And as you begin to have that changed heart, then you begin to practice and teach others all that Jesus has commanded you to do. Which if you read our passage is what Jesus calls us. He says all, of, all those who practice and teach uh, the commands will be great in the kingdom of heaven. But if you know the way this book ends, the gospel of Matthew ends, when Jesus commissions his disciples, he calls them to do several things. He says, go and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. And then he says this, teaching them to obey all that I've commanded you to do. There is this connection between the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount and the end of the Gospel of Matthew, teaching them to obey all that I've commanded you to do. And the way that happens is through the Holy Spirit, developing in us a new heart that longs to obey, to practice what Jesus calls us to, and also teach it. You need the Holy Spirit to give you the courage when you're going to be afraid and be like, I am inadequate, I don't know how to teach, I don't know. I have no idea how I would do that. I don't want to do it. I'm afraid of standing or sharing with people. And those of us who actually feel like we've been apathetic or distracted, we need the Spirit of God to empower us to actually be the people he's redeemed us to be. You actually begin to love the Scriptures when the Spirit comes into your life. You want to know them, live in them, live by them. 
You begin to see Jesus in the law and the prophets. You rejoice in how he fulfills them. These are the things he does. Frederick Bruner will say, make your life goal to be a personal translation of Scripture. And you'll be given the reward of great when you come to the kingdom of heaven. What a powerful picture, a personal translation of Scripture. And if the Bible is just one unified story that points to Jesus, then I think you could say that when you become this personal translation of Scripture, you're actually presenting Jesus or representing Jesus to our world. Jesus isn't against the external. He's against making the external the only part of your faith. And so maybe you hear this this morning and you realize this is just not you. This is not where you're at right now. You identify with Jesus, but the statement of this transformation, of this love for the scriptures, of wanting to obey him and practice and teach, that just doesn't align with your experience right now. The invitation for you is to repent. The reason it doesn't align with your reality is because you've actually forgotten who you are. And every time you and I come to the Sermon on the Mount and we see certain things that don't align with our lives, the invitation is for us to actually repent and to see who it is that Jesus has called us to be and declares us to be. Last week, we literally saw it. You are the light of the world. You are the salt of the earth. It's who you are by virtue of keeping company with me, being with me, coming into contact with me. You need to come back to who Jesus says you are and enter into that new reality. And one of the ways that